You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Rami Abraham. Happy Monday. Welcome back to Monday Science, which is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Uh, please don't forget that you can send your questions to mondayscience2020 at gmail.com or through the chat function on our website, which is mondayscience.wixsite.com forward slash podcast. On the 5th of July, 1948, the NHS, and so that's the National Health Service in the UK, uh, was, was born, was created. On Sunday, uh, the 5th of July, just gone, that marked 72 years since the NHS and social care system was established in the UK. I had the opportunity to uh, interview somebody who works in the NHS and in particular somebody who's been working in the NHS during uh, COVID-19. And uh, the guest on today's episode is Dr. Derek Gondongwe. He's the lead pharmacist for education at the University College London Hospitals. Um, he also uh, has uh, expertise in critical care pharmacy and he's going to tell us all about what critical care pharmacy is and, and what he's been doing there. But specifically, COVID times, he's been coordinating uh, University College London Hospital's pharmacy critical care teams, uh, recovery and uh, for preparedness for COVID-19 plans. And we spoke, it was a, just a fantastic and eye-opening uh, interview. And so it's, I'm going to be sharing it in two parts. This is part one. And then part two will be next week. So I hope you enjoy and let me know what you think. I'm currently a pharmacist at uh, Univ- University College London Hospital. Uh, and my current role is I lead pharmacist education uh, as well as a, being a critical care pharmacist. And I split those job roles 50-50. So to give you a bit of background, I am a tw- 2007, I'm showing my age here, uh, <laughs> graduate from UEA where I got my um, uh, M-Pharm or Master of Pharmacy. Uh, uh, I was in the first cohort of graduates from that school of pharmacy. Uh, uh, so yeah, so, so pharmacy, pharmacy qualification in general in the UK is four years of an integrated master's uh, at a credit, accredited school of pharmacy and we are registered with the each school would be registered with the General Pharmaceutical Council. And then when a candidate gets their Master of Pharmacy, they then work for one year in full practice as a pre-registration pharmacist. Uh, they have to meet, from memory, 76 uh, competencies that they have to be able to demonstrate they're able to, um, to do. So things like, you know, they can effectively screen your prescription and make sure that it's safe for a patient. Uh, that they're professional, they're not doing anything that brings the profession to disrepute. Uh, And then at the end of that pre-registration training year, uh, we sit a registration exam. uh, And on successfully passing that exam, a pharmacist then becomes registered to join the uh, register on the General Pharmaceutical Council. Uh, And at this point, uh, careers then go in different directions. So with mine, after I finished my pre-registration pharmacist, training at Guys and St. Thomas's, I took on my first pharmacist role, which was I was a junior pharmacist at the University College London Hospital. Uh, and essentially my job role for the, the next two years and a bit was providing clinical pharmacy services. Um, and I guess uh, just to enlighten, um, I explain to the, your, your listeners, Bahija. So in, in hospital practice, I, I, I guess I, 
one of the things that my my mother particularly asked me when I first got my hospital job, she was like, so what does the pharmacist do in hospital? Uh, at, 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 a, at a very basic level, we, we, we go in, we see all patients who come into hospital. Yeah. Uh, we do a what we call a medicines reconciliation where we try and establish, uh, to the best of our knowledge of the patient and everything else that we can use, a, a comprehensive list of what the patient's medication was prior to admission. Um, and, and then the real fun and games and the real things that keep me in the profession come afterwards. Because obviously, if, as an example, if a, a patient comes in and they've had a heart attack, uh, it's, uh, and they were taking X five, five medicines, but we need to treat them for the heart attack that they've had. One of the, the fundamental pharmacist roles in hospital is to make sure that the treatment that we're about to start is works in synergistically with the treatment that the patient was having before they came in. So if we ended up giving something to treat in hospital that actually could interact with something that a patient was taking before they came in, then that leads to catastrophe. Uh, and, and in some cases, uh, Touch food is not that often, but you get readmissions, you get people being seriously harmed. So our job role in hospital from uh, at least with the clinical pharmacist is pretty much that making sure that the treatments that are being administered in hospital work with what patients pre-existing issues were. And then and then in addition to that, we then also monitor the progression and efficacy of that particular treatment. Um, oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you there. I was just going to say thank you for that, because um, and please don't forget what you're going to say, but it was just when you explained in particular the role of the hospital pharmacist, which um, I think people are more familiar perhaps with the role of the community pharmacist because mm. they tend to see, you know, it, it will be unless it's a very you know serious incident or disease or whatever, that's where they would see the hospital pharmacist. But in most cases, people tend to come in contact with a community pharmacist more often. So that, Absolutely. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely, for sure. Uh, and in fact, in terms of the way the profession is set up, about 70% of pharmacists uh, on the register would work in uh, in community services, so in primary care. Uh, the other 20% uh, work in secondary care, which is hospital, and then the rest 10% are in diverse roles, uh, including academia uh, and other places. Uh, so just coming back to my uh, career, so graduated from UEA, uh, pediatrician pharmacist at Bison St. Thomas's, uh, and then foundation training at U University College and Hospital. Uh, and then sort of while I was doing that foundation training, I was fortunate enough to uh, the hospital that I worked in, and most hospitals are the same thing, where we've got a rotational program where every three to four months, uh, you try out a different discipline within medicine. Uh, and I was lucky enough to cover things like HIV and infectious disease, general medicine, and had my first taste of critical care uh, at that point. Um, but I was also going through a stage in my life where I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do with my career. So I, and because I hadn't decided, I made a decision to go and read for a PhD. Uh, with a view that one, it would expand my horizons, but also give me time to actually figure out um, what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so I uh, went back to higher education and read for a PhD, which I had to look up my thesis this morning because I couldn't remember the title myself. 
so an, an evaluation an evaluation of an electronic tongue uh, for taste assessment of drugs and uh, uh, for, for uh, formulations medication formulations okay. uh, and and in a in a nutshell what I did was we had a an electronic tongue and yes it's as it's electronic in that it, it, there's no humans involved but it's not yet at AI level if, if just for your audience um, and my job was so these tongues uh, and there's two in the uh, in the world that are available commercially at the moment so one Japanese and one French I have the Japanese version and these are widely used actually in the food industry where they are meant they assess taste of so if you're a Japanese soup making company and you were making uh, packet miso soup and you wanted to work out that once it's reconstituted from the dry powders how, what is it going to taste like then and you have a comparator so you know oh this brand everyone already really likes then you use the electronic tongue to see how close or far away in terms of uh acceptability is the taste of that particular product um so we thought it would be a really good idea to just look at uh whether you could translate that technology to the pharmaceutical industry because obviously we also need to taste medicines so one of the things that we know really, really well is the taste of medicine can actually affect uh how well patients take that medication yeah uh, and so so yeah so my job was to see if that technology could be translated to the pharmaceutical industry and in a nutshell we found yes but it needs some modif modifications. Uh, so post PhD I then decided to go back into clinical practice so at the, and at this point I had made a decision that I quite like critical care so I uh, had my first full-time critical care job uh, and then I held a number of positions between then and now um, all of which had an element of critical care. And now I am where I said I was, which is lead for education and uh, a critical care pharmacist at University College London Hospital. Lovely, thank you so much for that overview. There's some points, I was just sitting here making notes. So mm. one of the things I even wanted to thank you for was being honest when you said that, you know, that you reached a stage in your career where you just were not quite sure what you wanted to do. And mm. I don't feel enough people comment on that and are honest about that because I don't know if you've seen that um there's this uh picture of the iceberg you know and people yes. only see the top and they only yeah. see the success but they don't see the other part the resilience determination confusion yeah <laughs> you know all of that and, and I think it's, it's important to um, I wish more people actually just acknowledge that on their journey to where they are now and the successes that we see there is a lot of I don't know I don't know what I want to do but I'm going to mm. figure it out um, so there was that. Uh, the, I have to go back to you not remembering the, your PhD thesis title because I have to say <laughs> the reason why I probably laughed a bit too long is because I was trying to remember mine. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, uh, do you know what I'm going? I'm going to find. Uh, did you have when you submitted your thesis? Was it um, online? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to find it and I'm going to put. Just we need to because now I'm going to take notes of your title. I'm going to put it in the episode description. So listeners, uh, Dr. D Derek Gondongwe's um, thesis will be on the episode <laughs> description. And um, we don't need to put mine. Yours, your, no, yours. Um, 
if, if, if anyone's interested in, in reading about taste of medicines, of course. Of, well, I, I mean, I think it's important, you know. It is. Like, it is. Yeah, it's it's it is an important point, and um, I'm sure you've probably had to take that into consideration in your practice. I, I do all the time. Yeah, exactly. So, so for that very reason, <laughs> and because you did well to remember your title, uh, <laughs> it will be in the episode description. Um, Thank but you. I, I, <laughs> I wanted to just ask if you could just elaborate on the term critical care, and and the reason oh, yes. why I ask is that. Um, I I myself am not sure if I fully understand what it is, right? Okay. And and I think that again it goes back to that point of the understanding or or well, I guess um I'm trying to find the right words, patient or the general public's understanding of community services as opposed to what happens in secondary care, so in hospital setting which where you're based. So I just and, and I don't know if that does that sound sort of right in in my yeah yes yes I, I, I mean thank thank you for that question and uh you're absolutely right i should really uh break down critical care so um the way it's evolved I, I, and i'm sure I, i'm hoping your audience are and they probably will be familiar with the term intensive care medicine or intensive care units right so uh if if, if you if you accept that medicine like any other profession is uh, a, a a reflection of history uh, so, so we learn by experience, um, and the so in medicine when people are acutely unwell, uh, they need specialized care, and for a very long time it was believed that that care had to be intensive. Mm. So, if, so if you're going to give oxygen, you're going to give 100% oxygen at the maximum flow rate that you can give, and that should keep the patient alive, right? So it was everything was always and, and it, it, the 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 term intensive care is deliberate in that the idea was you're giving everything you're giving everything that you can give to make sure we can try and keep the patient alive or to resuscitate that patient um, but over the years people, as medicine has evolved people have realized that actually being intense i.e give giving everything that you can is not always the right thing so coming back to the example of oxygen right so one could argue oh Surely if someone can't breathe, and, and you know, COVID-19 is a good example. So if someone can't breathe, let's, why not just pump in as much oxygen into their lungs as you can for as long as you can until they start breathing again? And, and the answer to that is simple. Um, one, uh, 100% oxygen. So we, we normally survive in an atmosphere that has about, I'm going to round up to 21% oxygen in the atmosphere and the rest is nitrogen and everything else. Right. So our lungs are adapted to breathing in 21% oxygen and the rest being not that we, is being used by our, um, our bodies. So if I crank up that oxygen percentage from 21% to 100%, what you then end up doing is within the body you create free oxygen radicals because the body is not designed to handle 100% oxygen all the time. The natural state is 21% all the time. So cranking it up to 100% means you end up building these free, free oxygen radicals, which are actually quite toxic and hazardous to the body. That's one. The other one is by putting in that pressure to push in as much as oxygen as you can, actually creates pressure within the lungs themselves. So the lungs, remember, are uh, right down to the molecule are uh, alveoli and the alveoli are baroreceptive so they can only stretch to a certain capacity and if you put more pressure than this they're able to stretch they will burst and that bursting is, is it creates um, a lung injury and, and that lung injury could lead to death 
So, so uh, intensive care medicine has now evolved to critical care medicine, which is actually what you need is as little as possible in order to get the most benefit that you can. And in which case, then it's a critical balance that you're trying to achieve as opposed to being intense all the time. Mm. Um, so with the question of oxygen, again, it's now going to, well, you give as much oxygen as you can, as you need to, to maintain a certain level of oxygen, which is the patient's body. And if, and if you get to, and you do what you can to minimize how much oxygen you give. So as an example, there's, if we're talking about oxygen therapy, and uh, I'm, I'm going to link in COVID very quickly because it's the thing in the in everyone's minds, is one of the things that we did or are doing or the doctors are doing when it comes to management of patients with COVID is a technique called proning. And what proning means is in, in, in layman's terms is lying on your stomach. So when, when someone lies on their stomach, uh, the, the lungs open up a bit more because remember the lungs are sitting behind the chest. So if you're supine, the the, uh, the the chest material, so the actual physical chest material, is pressing on the lungs. But if you're the other way around, then actually the chest is going downwards, so therefore the lungs can open up a bit more and absorb. Uh, and it's called a recruitment maneuver. So your the alveoli open up a bit more and make them more functional, right? And so a proning maneuver allows you to be able to improve oxygenation, but without giving a lot of oxygen. Uh, which could then create a, a, a lung injury or uh, these free radicals. So it's so it's now called critical care medicine. In that the idea is to to balance this critical uh, balance that you need between giving enough so that the patient survives, but not too much that you cause injury. And then from a pharmacist perspective, I mean I've, I've talked about oxygen, but from a pharmacist perspective, that that translates to uh, us being the 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 expert on pharmacology and pharmacokinetics and dynamics. Uh, and for your audience, that means how, how a drug interacts with the body uh, and how the body interacts with that drug in, in relation. So how does the body clear the drug? Where does the drug go when it's in the body? What sort of side effects would you get? And what would you do if those side effects came about? Um, so one of my job roles on a critical care is if a drug, uh, if, the, if the drug is cleared by the kidneys, but actually, because of the illness that that person has got, the kidneys aren't working, then one, do we give that drug? Uh, uh, and if we give that drug, what do I need to make sure that I don't then either destroy the kidneys entirely because they've already been injured or that the drug accumulates in the patient's body that, that, that then becomes hazardous to the patient itself? So I spend a lot of my time on a critical care unit, making sure that, again, we critically get the dose right between making sure we give enough, if, if we're talking about antibiotic, so making sure that I can give enough antibiotic to treat the infection, but not too much that the kidneys would then struggle and not be able to clear the drug and result in side effects. Thank you for that, because that's, like, yeah, that was, blew my mind. I'm very, very interested um, in, under, that, that was very helpful in understanding this niche area that is critical care, because as I said, and you've even alluded to that most people probably know intensive care or like emergency ward or things like that. So that's very interesting. Just before I move on to the next question, how long has critical care been, um, if you know, I don't know, um, has critical care been a specialism um, or in existence? 
Oh, God, good, good question. I... No, I, I just wondered, just because you said, because I didn't know that journey from intensive care to critical care. But I don't, I, there's no, I don't know the answer, obviously. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I generally don't know the answer to that. I, 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 I want to say probably, uh, maybe not as much as medicine has been around, mm-hmm. but definitely for as long as surgery has been around. Mm-hmm. Because critical care from a, from a surgical perspective is, uh, and I'm going to be colours here. We've just gone in, and you've just chopped something out of someone's body. Uh, so therefore, you need to keep the pe- the person alive after you've chopped the bit that was causing the problem, right? So, so that that care after the surgeon has done their job is is also critical. So I, when I talked about COVID, that was a, is a medical condition. But actually, I think the evolution of intensive care medicine, I think would have come via the surgical route, which is we've actually done something and therefore we need this critical period where we keep the patient alive. I was just going to say, just to be clear, that intensive care and critical care terminology is synonymous, uh, but in in medicine, it's now known as critical care. People very rarely use, uh, I mean, they do because ICU is more colloquial. Um, but the official term it would be critical care uh, uh, medicine. Lovely, thank you. Okay, you actually mentioned um, COVID nineteen uh, mm-hmm. quite a few times, and that leads me on to my next question. So, what would you say? Or, well, it's not even so much what would you say. What has your role uh, been in managing patients, and also maybe us, and also NHS staff, other NHS mm-hmm. staff during uh, the pandemic, during these COVID nineteen times? Um, oh, uh, thank you for that. That's a. Uh, uh, I'm gonna have to tell it as as it happened because that's probably the easiest way. Because I think right. my 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 role evolved as the as the pandemic evolved. I think it's probably the right word to use. Um, so, like I said, my job role pre COVID was 50% education lead and 50% on critical care, and my COVID journey starts in early February, I think, um, where I I was asked to attend a meeting uh, within the, my organisation uh, because our lead for critical care, uh, you know what, I can't even actually remember, either he was on holiday or he had another meeting to go to, so he asked me to deputise for him. And this was, the meeting started with one of our epidemiologists, uh, uh, at least the first time that I had heard of COVID-19 uh, being a coronavirus, uh, being in Wuhan, uh, and how much we knew from an epidemi- epidemiological point uh, uh, view. Uh, so at this stage, we, in the UK, uh, it wasn't being talked about. Uh, the, I mean, a, a, every, everything, th- there was no conversations happening about it. And it was the first thing, thing where this epidemiologist was explaining to us what that meant. Uh, and, then, and, and then the very early discussions about symptomology. So what symptoms would the patients present with? And then we had very cursory, very cursory discussions about how would you treat this? And I remember having a 
a uh, we had representation from our uh, infectious disease consultants as well as our um, virology consultants and I remember at the time asking them to say oh so guys what are you thinking the treatments are going to be uh, uh, and in my head to be honest it was because uh, I hadn't heard of the virus virology and infectious disease uh, doctors are the experts in that area um, and I, I was deferring to their expertise in terms of what they would think a treatment for that virus would be uh, with a viewpoint that from then I would then I was going to then go and look and see um, what the evidence is for the treatments that they suggested how that would interact or uh, play out with the type of patient that I'm used to seeing on the critical care so, so in my head I'm really thinking oh if they say this and this patient's kidney is not working, um, they're going to come to me to ask me what dose should we give because we want to use this drug and we don't, we, we, the kidneys are not working, what should I do? And the other flip side of me was, and this goes back to when I was um, uh, training, where my, my pre-registration tutor, uh, who I had a very good relationship, uh, you used can to say, say his name, uh, their name if you want. Oh yes, yes, I can, yes. Uh, so uh, Miss Shirley Ip. Yes. Uh, she's my pre-registration tutor. And she used to say to me, uh, uh, she used to say to me, uh, Derek, you could be, you could know all the pharmacology in the world. You could know all the pharma uh, clinical guidance you need to know. But if you can't get the drug to the patient, uh, you might as well be stupid. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so, so at that point, the other reason for me asking the virologist about what drugs they'd be using, I was thinking, right, are these drugs uh, licensed in the UK, are they available? If we started using them in good, big quantities, what would be what would I be looking at? Uh, and the uh, and and note that I'm I'm going to say the name of the drug not as a promotional, but just as a uh, part of the story. So mm -hmm. this is where I first heard of the of remdesivir. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and for your audience, uh, remdesivir is a an antiviral that is, was developed for the treating the Ebola virus um, uh, uh, by a big US company. So that was the first time that the virologists went, oh, actually, uh, there's some interest with this drug uh, and the Chinese are looking at it. Uh, and I went away from that meeting and I remember ringing the, the company that made the drug and said, you know what, my virologist has just said this. Uh, I need more information about what this drug you know, what, what does it look like? Uh, how is it given? Any data that you've got? And then also, how do I get hold of it if I wanted to? Uh, and then things sort of, sorry, go on. No, I just want to ask a question because there's there's so much in what you've just said just now. And as you were talking, I was getting goosebumps because there are many things. Pharmacists uh, combined, so you're a pharmacist combined with having a PhD. Therefore, what do you love? Evidence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the, the two sort of, you know, pharmacists were very like, we love the evidence. Is it if it is all that? Then on mm. top of that, you've got your your kind of research expertise. Yes. And I can only imagine. Just want to just want to go back to that point. I'm sorry because mm. I was getting goosebumps as you were talking about February 2020. You're sitting there about, you know, just think, okay, I'm just going to get an update on this thing, and then I can read up about it and, you know, find some information. But no, because <laughs> there is none, really. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so I just want to go back to that point. How did you feel at that point where, 
you know you're asking for this i guess it's to the point you're actually talking to about sorry but you're mm. you're you want to find out information because that you want to be able to offer the best solution based on mm-hmm. evidence but it's this and you know i am so I, I i look for well i look forward to when we're out of the pandemic because you're just in an unknown everything is unknown so yeah i just want to what did you do at that point where there's just so many unknowns <laughs> so, so you know what actually this this gonna sound weird so because at this point i had no understanding or visual or imagination of the clinical impact right of what was about to happen so to right now um, bearing in mind i was working on critical care uh when uh bird flu happened already right so 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 in my head i was already going this um and and of course we didn't see anywhere near the numbers that uh we've seen with covid but i remember i i hearkened back to that point where i was going oh yeah we had this drug uh and for bird flu it was i uh, zanamivir which I remember, again, we had a very similar situation where the Zanamavir at the beginning was an inhaled preparation only. Uh, and I'm quite sure. And, and then obviously on, on, ICE, on critical care, uh, if, if, if a patient is ventilated, then inhaling a product uh, requires a particular formulation which can be nebulized for the most part. Um, and some people, uh, I don't know whether it's national or international, they had tried to nebulize the dry powder of Zanamivir, and that ended up with the powder clogging up the ventilator and patients suffering harm. So, so, so based on that, we were already going, okay, if we have patients ventilated, what are we going to do? Fortunately, we ended up getting a, a hold of a... IV product that was still a phase two trial and then was was then was then used on a uh, compassionate use uh, named patient basis so because I'd had that experience when this early February when this was happening I was thinking okay this is very similar to what I've uh, had before Uh, and like I said medicine is like history so you you, you, it's it's very easy to go okay what do I need to know so is the drug cleared in the kidney do they have that information if it is what am I going to do and, and bearing in mind, and just for your audience, that when drugs are developed, they're, they're usually tested on people that are well. So people who do not have kidney problems uh, uh, and, and people with mild disease. It's, it's only when it gets to phase four, when you're looking at post-marketing surveillance, that's when you get the data about um, people with kidney failure or hepatic failure or any other um, uh, um, metabolic dysfunctions. Uh, so at this point, in my head, I was going, Ebola uh, never really affected us here in the UK. I mean, we know about it, but uh, if, if memory serves me right, we had two patients in the country, both of whom were healthcare professionals who'd gone to uh, West Africa to help with the Ebola crisis and came back having contracted the condition. Uh, and I think one of them, both of them were nurses from memory. Um, so in terms of the general public and the general population, including myself, I didn't really treat Ebola patients. Um, so I, I, in my head, I was like, right, I need to go and read about what this drug is, how they used it in that particular condition, and then how we're going to translate it to this new condition that we don't know about. Uh, so, yeah, so, so I didn't, and because I didn't have that 
realization about what was about to happen. I didn't think more of it aside from that, that just the, that pragmatic thing of going, oh, I need to be able to answer this. And interestingly enough, I after the phone call with the company, they sort of said, well, we're currently in discussion with the with the government and the medicines and health regulations agency. We can't really tell you anything. And oh. that was <laughs> uh, well, because because at this point, they the government, that particular drug company had started a phase two trial in China. So they were uh, for that for remdesivir. Uh, so they were in discussions with the MH, uh, MHRA, so the Medicines Health Regulation Agency, uh, together with the government to see whether or not they could start the sim- a similar trial in the UK, uh, which is why uh, obviously there was some commercial sensitivity. They couldn't talk to me about it. Um, and then I sort of left it. And then I didn't hear anything after that for another couple of weeks. Uh, and then this time, uh, uh, this, again, very similar meeting was called uh, and I attended. And because I attended the first one, this was now an update going, oh, by the way, guys, we've now been designated a centre that is going to accept COVID patients. So at this point within the NHS, uh, not, all, not all hospitals in the country are designed to look after uh, infectious diseases. Right. In the sense that you, for, for something like Ebola, you need a, um, a negative pressure room, you need isolation suites and all these other criteria to make sure that that virus or pathogen doesn't spread uh, into the hospital and into the wider circulation and that the healthcare professionals treating those patients are also protected. So uh, not all hospitals are designed like that. But because UCLH is part, has the Hospital of Tropical Disease, we have some of those facilities. So we weren't in the first wave of hospitals that were designated COVID to accept COVID patients, but we were in the second wave. So, so rolling two weeks later, mid-February, uh, we then have a proper meeting. I say proper meeting, another meeting. But this time it's, oh, guys, we are now a center of accepting COVID patients. So the, the operational... Uh, uh, arm of the hospital, which is armed with ED doctors, infectious disease doctors, virologists, critical care, uh, and I'm there as critical care pharmacist. Uh, and, and, and the conversation now is, okay, uh, initially it was the doctors talking about what sort of symptoms would they see, and we were making decisions around, okay, so what is there a COVID test? Uh, what happens with these patients? What's the Department of Health guidance? What's Public Health England telling us? Um, and, and again, at this point, I still ask the question again to say, guys, I know that two weeks ago we talked about this um, and it was just musings over what sort of treatments would use. But actually now it's getting real because you've, you've, we're now talking about patients coming to our hospital. So now I need to know for sure where is it that we're going with this? Um, and at that point, uh, the viro- I had a, a separate meeting with the virologist and, and they gave me the if 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 if. If a patient was dying, I would try this drug. And I was like, fine. Uh, so me and my team went down to, okay. Uh, and actually I can share it. This, at, at that time they were considering um, a, a, a drug that's used for HIV uh, treatment. Uh, that's what, what our virologists were thinking they were going to use. And we were like, okay, fine. Uh, so we knew we had the supplies. We had experience of seeing the drug from a HIV perspective. Uh, we still didn't have any evidence of how it would work with COVID patients. 
uh, but we knew that it wouldn't cause any harm. Uh, so we're like, okay, if 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 in a worst case scenario they ask for this drug, I'd more likely be like release it um, uh, and see where we go. And then March very much translated to it is happening because that's when we started seeing pictures coming out of Italy and Spain. Uh, so sorry, also in March that was it was that was roughly no it was mid March when the WHO declared. Uh, coronavirus as a pandemic am I right yes so yes. At, at that point everybody was almost I don't know if I can use the word feral at this point because everyone's just who knows let's just see what we could do but I, it sounds as if by that second meeting so if that would be sort of mid-February time that there was a bit more we need to sort something out like you know this is happening and whilst we're still waiting for the WHO am I getting the time timeline right it, it, it sounds about right I mean we I don't know if from a local level, we weren't thinking what, what what's the WHO going to do or what DOH are going to do, to be fair, because at, at a local level, it was very much we we are the ones who are going to accept these patients. So is our hospital set up? Do we, do, you know, do we? So the, the type of discussions that we're having was if, if, and so at this point, we knew enough that some people were asymptomatic, some people had mild symptoms and some people had severe symptoms, right? So the conversation was, well, if someone walks into the hospital and they're asymptomatic, but they don't know, we have no way of knowing, how is that going to play out, right? Uh, and also, okay, if they are symptomatic, then what do we need to be able to make sure that we protect our staff? What do we need to make sure that we protect other patients? So of course, as a hospital, we don't want people to come into our organization and get infections from us. Or from other patients, we want them to be to come in, have whatever treated treatment they need, and go home being fit and healthy. So all these conversations are playing around, and I think for me it became serious when, like I said, the imagery out of imagery out of Italy started coming out. That's when for us, for me as a as a critical care pharmacist, was going okay. So this is real, and um, are we ready? And I, I I will confess, everything after that, it was a whirlwind. Um, we, we went from, oh, we have one patient, we have five patients, we have 15 patients, uh, we now have 35 patients. Uh, oh, our ICU is now full, we need to expand to somewhere else so we can look after more patients. Uh, so I, I went to a succession of meetings where we were, every day was a right, uh, to, this is where we are today, and if we are going to go by what's happening in Italy, in two weeks' time, the projected number of cases will be X, and we need to be ready to be able to look after those projections. So some of our uh, critical care consultants who are uh, data analysts as well, um, we're starting to build models of how, because we're expecting exponential growth, uh, and just to see what the exponential growth would look like versus time. So in, on, in our timeline, so we're going, right, on the 13th of March, we have however many cases, what would that look like on the 13th of April? So a month later, and will we be ready to accommodate those sort of patients? And what that translated from a pharmacy perspective for me was like, okay, so if we are going, and the, and the type of things we're starting to ask and coming through, uh, so I personally don't have uh, connections in Italy, uh, but some of our consultants are members of the European uh, Intensive Care Medicine 
intensive care society uh, and obviously they've got counterparts uh, who are intensivists in Italy and there was emails going back and forth and and, and we're starting to get a picture of so uh, and from remember from and I didn't say this earlier so critical care also looks after the sickest patients of the hospital right so the information that we're getting out of the uh, Italian intensivists is uh, these patients are really really unwell um, uh, and again, just for your audience and, and, and for you. So in, in critical care circles, we classify the level, the severity of illness in three levels. So we have what we call level one uh, critically ill uh, is what most people would understand as ward care. So if you're in a general ward from a critical care perspective, that's level one. So there's, there's for the lack of a better word, one non-essential organ not working. Uh, but not enough to threaten life, mm -hmm. right? Uh, level two is you've got uh, uh, someone has got a significant impairment in an organ that could threaten their life, but needs minimal support. So they're not at the point where they need to start having that balance. Um, uh, and and then level three becomes uh, so someone where someone who's had a heart attack. Uh, and their heart is not working uh, and therefore they need support for that organ or or they have two or more organs that need support right so if it's a heart attack just one organ for the heart because it's essential for life becomes automatic level three but if say the kidneys and the liver weren't working at the same time then actually that becomes a level three as well but if it was just their liver for argument's sake that could be a level two because people can can get liver damage or liver dysfunction, but without being life-threateningly unwell with it. So we were starting to get information from the Italian counterpart, our Italian counterparts about how unwell these patients were. And what was coming out of that anecdotally was very much, we're talking about level three patients where uh, in addition to, so they all had the respiratory system not working, so lung function was impaired. In addition to that, there were, you know, a proportion, about 20%, we needed cardiovascular support. So the, the heart and the heart function wasn't great. Uh, there was around about the same percentage of patients who needed renal support because their kidneys weren't working. Uh, and then and, the, and then because their lung uh, lung function wasn't working as their primary issue, then their huge patients um, uh, who are intubated, so they have a tube inserted in, uh, via their mouth to ventilate, uh, usually are on sedatives and um, pain relief continuously to make sure that they're comfortable with that tube. So automatically the, 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 the skill required for that goes up. And from a pharmacist's perspective, is now trying to manage administration of all these medicines, make sure that they're within safe limits, no adverse effects, no interactions, and then also as the numbers start to increase, do I have enough of this drug to be able to keep it going for indefinite amount of time? Um, so, so at this point, we, from a pharmacy perspective, we're now galvanizing, going, right, we, we need to make sure that if we end up with uh, a, a, a full unit with level three patients, that I've got enough sedative agents to be able to keep all these patients um, asleep. Um, so that's so that's March. Uh, and, and, and I should give the backdrop of bearing in mind we're, we're coming from a background where 
uh, I'm sure you, your listeners are, are, are off or are aware of this, that every so often there's always medication shortages. So, so there's always one thing or the other that's not available because um, uh, a, a plant that manufactures X, there was an earthquake near that place, so they stopped making that product. So, you know, so there's always there's always one thing or the other that's not available. Uh, and again, the thing that pharmacists do is suggest alternatives and keep uh, uh, treatments going. Uh, so, so we with that in, 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 uh, as a backdrop. So we already had, for example, uh, a, a national shortage of diamorphine, uh, which is sometimes used to keep patients. Uh, sedated. It's a good pain relieving medication, but we already had a a, 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 a a manufacturing issue with diamorphine. So it was being supplied on a quota basis based on how many patients and how often you normally use it. Uh, so, so the notion of, oh, but we're now going to increase the usage of something like diamorphine where already we were having supply issues with it was actually quite daunting for, um, for me. Um, and, and then things definitely snowballed after that. So I will confess that our my organization uh, ramped up, but I think counterparts from other, so what, what I was hearing from other organizations seemed to be worse than what I was experiencing. Uh, and uh, certainly we weren't hit by shortages as quick as other organizations. Uh, so we started making plan Bs and plan Cs so, Sorry, I'd just like to ask at what, so I just, because I'm just trying to create a picture yeah. of timeline, because considering we only now have just entered, was it Q3? So this is a lot already in Q1. <laughs> slash Q2. So I'm just trying to understand. Um, so at this point, where are we? March, mid-March? We're, we're still in March. Where we, wow, still in March. Great. We're still in March, <laughs> yes. We're, at this point, we're aware of what's coming. So, so the critical care workforce uh, th there has been enough communication from the Italians. There's been th things on the news where we are literally going, gird your loins. Uh, um, and, and at this point, there's very much a, 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 at least in my view, the way I, I took it was, this is a wartime situation where we are, so, so bearing in mind, just to, our, our, our standard on critical care as pharmacists is we see all patients every day. Uh, we look at their drug chart, we make sure everything is available, we make sure that the doses are safe for every single patient every day, at least once a day. Right. So with what was coming out of Italy, we were, uh, uh, and definitely I was one of the people thinking, right, I might not be able to see all patients every day and be as thorough as I would have been uh, and turn over every single stone. Uh, so we're going to have to go to a, a wartime situation, which is you help the ones that have the best chance of survival as much as you can. That, this is what's going through my head, going, damn, from what, from what we're seeing in, oh, excuse my, my, my French, um, uh, from what we're seeing in Italy, uh, this, this is looking like, because those guys were treating patients in corridors, right? That's what we were seeing coming out of Italy. So we were like, okay, so this is going to go... Uh, it's going to be hard. Uh, so then the government declared the lockdown uh, on the 23rd of March. And I think the next six weeks after that were incredibly difficult. We, so on my, in my organization, we doubled the number of 
critical care beds that we had. So our ICU expanded into our theatres. Uh, we, uh, we, like I said, we doubled the number of beds uh, and, and hence patients. Um, uh, from a pharmacist perspective, the, the, we expanded the critical care pharmacist team. So we trained um, a lot more people to be able to look after those patients. Um, but I think that the fundamental thing that happened to us was we, we as pharmacists, we actually went back to our basic function, which was uh, we need to be able to get the drug to the patient. That actually became uh, my, my, a, a big part of my job in, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, the other bits that we did, so I talked about educa ed educating, uh, and, and then, we, of course, we were getting uh, a lot of support from other uh, facets in the hospital. So, for example, we are getting uh, surgeons come and work on critical care. We had dental nurses working with critical care nurses to, to cater for the expanded critical care capacity. And from my perspective, that became, oh, I now have prescribers who are not used to working in a critical care capacity, but prescribing uh, or slash administering very high risk medication. So some of the medication that is used in critical care doesn't have fixed doses. So um, just to give an example, paracetamol has a fixed dose. For adults, you give one gram four times a day. You don't exceed four grams in any day. On critical care, we have drugs like um, uh, noradrenaline, which is used to maintain blood pressure, it's titrated to effect. So what we do is we decide we want the blood pressure to be, uh, uh, say, uh, a systolic of greater than, of less than 90. Uh, and then the nurses will administer, uh, will, uh, will increase or decrease the rate of infusion to, to meet that uh, uh, target blood pressure that we're aiming for. Uh, but if you have someone then prescribe and they don't know what the range of what the nurse should be working on is, then that's a risk. Uh, so, so, so there's a lot of education from our end to try and educate all these new healthcare workers in the critical care space that we're coming to help out our existing critical care establishment. When you commented about the war time, that was very interesting because I remember seeing a tweet um, uh, was it a tweet? It was a posting of somewhere, probably on social media. And this lady who was um, who had survived, uh, I don't remember which war, but she'd survived a war. Um, of some, I can't remember which one, I'm so sorry. It was quite into the pandemic and she was talking about how she's just reverted to as if she was still back in experiencing war um, and has just used that to help her in her coping mechanism. So I was quite interested when you made that comment that in a way you had to revert back to that sort of wartime That was the end of episode nine, part one interview with Dr. Derek Gondongwe, uh, giving us some insight to the early stage reaction from uh, his experience uh, to COVID-19 and COVID-19 preparedness. Uh, I was just blown away. Um, just, yeah, I, I think I even mentioned it, giving me goosebumps. Um, so be sure to tune in to next week's episode for the concluding part of this very, very intriguing uh, interview.